Hello and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. We're halfway through season 10 where our main focus is the MCU films, the Marvel Universe. And for today's episode, episode 95, we're going to be looking at James Gunn's satirical freak show that is the Guardians of the Galaxy, based on the comics by Stanley and of course directed by James Gunn. The film stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Solander, Batista, Karen Gillian, Michael Rooker, Bradley Cooper as the voice of Rocket and Vin Diesel as the voice of Groot. The 10th movie in the MCU film world coming halfway through Phase 2, but the first movie in Phase 2 to be an original origin story of a brand new superheroes or superhero group that we haven't seen before. And the introduction or mentions of some supervillains too that will later appear in the later phases, namely Phase 3. Phase 2 started with Shane Black's Iron Man 3 coming after the much-anticipated Avengers movie in 2012, which rounded off Phase 1 quite nicely. Iron Man was then followed by two more sequels, Thor The Dark World, arguably one of the worst films in the universe, and Captain America The Winter Soldier, arguably one of the best films in the universe. And right then, in 2014, we had some fresh meat, some new characters, a sideshow to the ever-expanding character development of the main six. We are shown the Guardians of the Galaxy, but who are they? What are they about? Is that a rabbit or a raccoon? And what the hell is Groot exactly? So many questions were asked when the trailer was first said, but it had such a natural sense of comfort from the first glance and sort of all these characters and their humour and their charm. This wasn't a familiar superhero like Spider-Man or a group like Fantastic Four. To most, this wasn't a renowned as the Hulk or Captain America. This was a hidden gem. Some may not have even known this group to begin with until the trailer came out, but not to the extent of some super fans that may have known these guardians of the galaxy, these super nerds of the Marvel Universe. When it surfaced in 2014, after being in the hands of fan favourite director James Gunn, this film brought a charm like no other, introducing satirical comedy, one lines, conflicts within the ranks, and one hell of a soundtrack that puts Quentin Tarantino to shame. And saying that, some of the songs in this movie are from Reservoir Dogs, but it just shows how great the choice of music was in this movie. So great, in fact that the soundtrack album Awesome Mix Volume 2 reached number one on the US Billboard 200 chart, the film soundtrack ever, the first ever film soundtrack ever to do so without any original music. It was also nominated for the 105th Grammy Award for Best Soundtrack, so it did quite well in terms of the music. In an interview from James Gunn, he said mainly composed music from the 1980s and 1970s songs, and he did it from that era because they're part of Quill's memories from when he was on Earth. And the music is such an important dynamic in this movie. It's a well-known, lovable songs that we hear that reminds the audience that our main character, you know, Peter Quill, even though he is a spaceman and mixing with talking plants and talking raccoons and whatever Drax is meant to be, that he is a real person from planet Earth, a place that we all know, who just like us is a fan of popular culture. So, Guardians of the Galaxy, and I have to admit, I wasn't familiar with the comics before the movie came out. They came out quite late, 1969, the year we sent a man on the moon. Well, the comic book came out seven months before they allegedly sent a man on the moon. I think we did. I'm pretty sure they did send a man on the moon. But the same explosive year, the Guardians of the galaxy first hit earth too see the initial members of the guardians were advanced astro yondo captain charlie and the targa it wasn't later that we get nikki starcart and alita and so roy thomas one of the guys in the marvel team came up with this idea about super gorilla fighting against russian and red chinese who had taken over and divided the usa stanley approved it and passed the idea on to a guy called arnold drake since stanley was busy with a fantastic four at the time so they basically had a board meeting about this idea and came up with one really big change to have it set in space 
North America. So when it was released in 1979, it got strong sales. But despite this, The Guardians didn't appear in another comic for another five years. No one knows why. It might be because it was overshone by some of the other ones, like Fantastic Four, which was really big at the time. The Hulk was really big at the time as well. And there were so many others. They weren't then used, I think they were used again in 1975, when Steve Gerber, like the team, and used them in Giant Size Defenders, issue five, where Cap, and the thing, the um, the big monster Rocky thing from Fantastic Four, uh, also appeared. It was a year later they were given their own series and their whole thing redesigned. And they were just space travelers inspired by none other than Star Trek, which was becoming big at the same time. They made an appearance in the Thor comics, but then sales went down for some reason. And they were absent again for another five years. And it wasn't until 1989, the year I was born, and because of the popularity of Star Trek Next Generation, that they sort of do this revamp of Guardians of the Galaxy and the comic books became popular again so like i said the original members were once called uh, major valance astro known as major victory an astronaut from the 20th century who spends a thousand years traveling with his crew all the other characters existed in other stories rocket was from marvel preview issue 7 gamora was from something called Strange Tales. Groot was from Tales to Astonish, which is where Ant-Man's from. And Drax actually appeared in Iron Man first off. So in fact, Peter Quill's character in the comics is a partner of Shadowcat in the X-Men. So they're all, part, you know, people dotted around from different universes or, you know, different parts of the comics. Now also in the original comics, the reason Drax hates Thanos, and we get explained this in the film sort of, is because he was a human called Arthur Dogus. And Thanos attacked him and his family because he thought they had spotted his ship he and his wife died his daughter survived and adopted by a mentor Thanos's dad she is known to be a villain and a hero in the comics at the same time she's called Heather and has these stupid telepathy powers anyway so skip five years and Kronos mentor uh, father, uh, Thanos' grandfather basically, his spirit merged with space and time, resurrecting Douglas and he became Drax the Destroyer this living weapon designed only to hunt and kill Thanos he could fly in the comics but they changed that in the film. Now Gamora and Nebula we know are Thanos' step adopted daughters which is obviously later, quite important later on with the third Avengers movie. As for Rocket, this was created by, called, uh, by a guy called Bill Mantlo who unfortunately became permanently hospitalized after a traffic accident in 1992. When they finished the movie, they gave him a special screen and credited him as the creator of Rocket, which I thought was quite nice. Now, funnily enough, it was the second film that year to have an animal called Rocket. The other one in 2014 was Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Bradley Cooper famously does the voice, and he went on and record and said he got paid more money doing the voice of Rocket than he did for the Oscar-winning performance he did in Silver Linings Playbook and the first Hangover films combined. Disney have some serious bank. This film was honestly the blockbuster everyone was waiting for. This film is actually irrelevant until a certain point. And the point is when you choose knowingly to accept the vision and draw ride that James Gunn is taking you on. It's filled with visual splendor and comedic performances of a star-studded cast. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. In all seriousness, until it absolutely needs to, and it's a refreshing watch for 2014, and it certainly sets a tone that we thought had been covered from the comedic charms of Iron Man's sarcasm, or Thor's bluntness, or Cap's inability to adapt, but what we have here is a new form of comedy that really does shine across the entire Marvel Universe. So this was sort of the role Chris Pratt decided to drop the weight he had on him for most of his life and turn his life around single-handedly with this role. Apparently, though, according to James Gunn, Chris Pratt's audition was really good. He was going to just offer him the part. Anyway, even if he couldn't lose the weight in time or get into shape, he was still going to offer Chris Pratt the role. After he read for 30 seconds, he knew he wanted Chris Pratt for the role. He said, you know, 
I could have just CGI'd a six pack on you or something, but I just want Chris Pratt. But luckily, Gunn gave Chris Pratt six months to get into shape, and he ended up losing 60 pounds and turning 10 of those into pure muscles. He said it was a lot of hard work and almost torturous that he filmed his shirtless scene. And he was like in awe. He was like, okay, wow. And he saw it play back on the monitor for the first time, and he felt the effort was well worth it. I think the other actors that were in contention to play Starlord were. Zachary Levi and Glenn Howerton. So he wanted a sort of unknown actor at the time. I say unknown in generic sense, you know, not an A-lister. So Chris Pratt turned his career around with this movie, banking him a successful action star that rivaled Brendan Fraser back in the 90s. He went into, you know, obvious stardom and started the new Jurassic Park franchise, Tomorrow War, which is on Prime that came out recently, and Magnificent Seven with Denzel, amongst other action movies. And I'm sure he'll continue to do that trend as well. So he's on a roll now. So Pratt stated in an interview that he stole the Star-Lord costume and everyone was quite shocked. But he said, the only reason I stole it was to put it on and visit sick children in the hospital who really wanted to meet Star-Lord. So can't be too mad at him, I guess. And he said that he based his performance on Star-Lord with a mixture of Han Solo and Marty McFly's characteristics and personality, which really does shine, to be honest. So James Gunn also told the actors to improvise where they can and want to give them this free-flowing atmosphere on set, which is really cool. And I think it really resonates on the film. Chris Pat, obviously, you know, his obscene gestures were all improvised in the movie. The line, if I had a back, if I had a black, uh, what was it? If I had a backlight, this place would look like a Jackson Pollock painting was improvised by Chris Pratt. Um, that was one of the lines he, James Gunn really wanted to keep in the movie. So he, he really fought hard for that line. So yeah, it's quite funny. Um, some things, however, were not. Zoe Solander nearly broke Chris's, uh, Chris's ribs while fighting the sequences. So during, um, during a training sequence, Chris and um, Zoe Solanda were wearing all these safety stuff and protective gear so they could actually hit each other really hard and land really big blows with get, without getting the other, uh, the other one hurt. And it came to the day of shooting and Chris forgot to wear his safety equipment and protective gear. And he didn't tell Zoe Solanda this because he thought, you know, she would hold back if she knew. If she knew. So under the impression he was wearing his gear, he, she kicked him square in the ribs where, you know, Chris just went down on the floor, and winded him totally. And he had a bruise for the remainder of the filming. It was actually quite funny. But yeah, he told that story on a GQ interview, I think. So with Vin Diesel, his before, I didn't even know it was Vin Diesel until his names came on the credits when I first watched it. But yeah, his performance as Groot was to help him get through a tough time with the loss of Paul Walker, who sadly died in a car accident um, during the filming of this movie, well, just before the filming of this movie. Um, yeah, it was the first time I came. he said, I came back to dealing with humans, uh, human beings after dealing with death. So playing a character who celebrated life in the way Groot does was very nice, which is what he said in an interview. So he recorded all of his lines and several lines, Russian, Mandarin, Spanish, Portuguese, German, and French. So his real voice was used all over the world. I mean, if you ask me, anyone could have done that role and God knows how much he got for, you know, just uttering that one line, but that's another story. However, he did say he recorded that line over a thousand times, so it's had repetitive. He did say when recording his lines, he would wear stilts so he could get a sense of how large Groot actually was. I mean, yeah, whatever works for you. This obviously reunites Vin Diesel and Michael Rucker, who are also both in Riddick, and also one of four times he has worked with a WWE superstar, Batista and this, The Rock in the Fast Five movies, Ronda Russo in Fast Seven, and more recently, John Cena in Fast Nine. But we have to agree that Groot is quite a nice touch to this movie a lovable character and because he's so lovable it's good to have a big action name star you know behind it to make it that much more special so in the comics Groot repeatedly regrows from a twig and possesses the same memories personalities each time he does which led fans to assume that this would be uh, you know the case in the films as well but however when the sequel to the film was released three or four years later James Gunn revealed that baby Groot 
does possess or does not possess any of the original memories and is actually a different being, which means that Groot did indeed uh, die saving his comrades in the last film or this film indeed. So yeah, he dies in this film. So as we know, the film is quite um, relevant to the events of Avengers Endgame and, of course, Infinity War, the appearance of the fourth Infinity Stone in this power, uh, which is a power stone that Quill stole in this sort of Indiana Jones way that is inside the orb. The others being the Tesseract scene in the last podcast episode, Captain America First Avenger, and again in Avengers. The second is Loki's staff, the Mind Stone, also in Avengers, and the third being the Ether Stone, otherwise known as the Reality Stone, which we see in Thor 2, the Dark World. This means at the point we know the whereabouts of the power, reality, space, and mindstone. The time and soul remain unknown until, of course, Doctor Strange, where it is revealed to be the Eye of Agamotto, belonging to the Ancient One. We don't see the last one, the Soul Stone, until Infinity War, where Thanos retrieves on Vormir after he sacrifices his own daughter, Gamora, which is why this film is quite relevant in more ways than one, bringing those arcs to the main antagonist with the introduction of Nebula and Gamora. And speaking of Gamora, obviously there is this love-interest relationship in this film between Quill and Gamora. However, this does mark the first Marvel Cinematic Movie to not have a kissing scene anywhere in this movie, which is actually quite interesting. They almost kiss in this film, but they withdraw at the last minute. An interesting fact. So the movie separates itself from the other Marvel movies. Many of them, you know, many uh, have called this movie a cross between Star Wars and the Avengers, and we know the following. But, you know, both of these movies are following these movies have, and this is sort of confirmed by the comments Chris Pratt said that he basically, you know, uh, portrayed his character as Han Solo, you know, the relationship with other earthly beings as trivial as making toast. And that's how exactly it, it describes it. It's so easy to, you know, be this character. The reason for the style and tone is, of course, James Gunn and his stylistic approach to movies. I recently watched the new Suicide Squad and I thought it was fantastic. And it, I really wasn't a fan of the, fir- you know, the first one. It was okay, but, um, you know, it's sort of just the second one just trumped it in every way. The choice of narrative structure and pace was an interesting choice in that movie, and it paid off nicely for a film that introduces like six new characters, and the same is done with Guardians. These are Marvel superheroes that isn't there isn't a singular hero that we've seen yet, like Thor or Iron Man or a group we know quite well, like Fantastic Four, so we have no expectations. This is the Guardians of the Galaxy. This movie, considering its satirical approach to the tone, is surprisingly touching, insanely funny, and as one critic says, it's an all-round great movie that never should have worked. It's like Black Adder or Hot Shots or Anchorman uh, having, you know, all the comedy it does and still has an emotional scene and still touches a note with your heart and yet have all the laughs the movie has to offer. I mean, balance, I mean, to balance those out in the same running time is quite impressive. And this is where James Gunn comes in good. I mean, with Suicide Squad, the sequel to a movie about villains in the DC that was not that great and now tries to reintroduce more characters should not have been good or made and yet. It was, and it was actually quite good and such a joyride. I mean, the initial pitch or look for Guardians was, again, something that wasn't batting any eye links, but this comes to James Gunn's strength, which is exceeding expectations to people who have no expectations to these movies. He is, in a nutshell, pleasantly surprising when he makes his movies. Um, You know, he can really make a bad film at a glance insanely good. Now, Hollywood and audiences take him seriously now, and he's now got this sort of cult following, kind of like how Tarantino did after Reservoir Dogs or John Carpenter did after The Fog. So I think this is sort of the new age of the James Gunn, because he's only done like four films. I think he's only done the two Guardians films, Suicide Squad, and then he did a film called Super with Ellen Page, uh, like in the noughties. 
it's just this thing, you know, like Tarantino's thing is dialogue or Danny Boyle's thing is smaller movies. James Gunn thing is satirical humor that somehow draws his emotion. So Taika Waititi does this too with his films and the guy who did Jojo Rabbit. I mean, who's actually um, in Suicide Squad. I mean, the strong cast that perfectly embodies these characters, characters who have no expectations on the audiences or no, you know, no one knows real knowledge of any of them. You know, we don't know, like, you know, like we know Cap has a shield or Thor has a hammer or Iron Man can, is a tech you know, specialist, but we don't know anything about these guys. Um, we don't know Peter Quill at all. We don't know Gamora. We don't know what Drax is all about. We don't know, you know, what Rocket's all about. We, but, you know, within that 20 minutes of meeting all of these characters, we know that Quill loves music. Rocket's a loud mouth. Drax is a bit particularly awkward. Nebula's very vicious and aggressive. You know, you get that in 20 minutes and it's done really well. And it's done, it's through conflict and humor as well. And it's, you know, like I said, it's just, it just comes down to um, really good directing. Um, so yeah, like the strong cast that perfectly embodies these characters, characters have no expectation. This isn't, um, you know, there's, this isn't Tom Holland playing Spider-Man for me or for the first time or whoever or plays or someone playing Mr. Fantastic. This is Peter Quill, a random dude from earth. You know, we're watching with the greatest hits on his MP3, who is now in outer space going from adventure to adventure, which is very hand solo. I mean, it's more a Star Wars film than an MCU movie, and that is another reason why it's probably so good. It gave an unexpected, refreshing break from what we saw in Phase 1. And finally, speaking of Star Wars, I mean, if you haven't seen the hints already, I mean, the producers must love this movie, uh, Star Wars, that is, because it's referenced everywhere. Spider-Man referenced it in Civil War um, as the, you know, as the old movie, as, you know, when he... Um, and he's tying up the giant Ant-Man. And he's like, has anyone seen that really old movie referring to a Star Wars movie? And, you know, like Anakin Skywalker, who loses a hand in Attack of the Clones, and like in Empire Strikes Back, um, when Skywalker loses another arm, there seems to be this sort of reference of people losing their arms in the MCU universe, which is a reference to the Sky, uh, the Star Wars movie. I mean, Iron Man 3, Aldrich loses his arm. You know, Thor, Dark World, Loki cuts off Thor's arm. Winter Soldier, Bucky loses his arm. Guardians, Gamora cuts off Groot's arm. Nebula cuts her own hand. In an Age of Ultron, he cuts off an arm of one of his men. And I wonder if they're going to continue to um, do this trend. And I think they might. So it's an interesting source of um, reference to Star Wars. But yeah, there's no doubt the producers of uh, the MCU love Star Wars. But anyways, that's all I have time for with Guardians of the Galaxy. One of the funniest ones and a fan favorite amongst the majority. Please subscribe to me on Spotify, Google, Amazon Play, and I'm on iTunes. And you can follow me on Twitter and I'm mainly on Instagram. That's Film Exploration, A-H, all lowercase, all one word. But once again, thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. <laughs>